I used a, a hunting rifle for the first time in my life. I took a shot. It hit me in the face. I ended up in the emergency room. <laughs> oh, my God. It was incredibly embarrassing. The congressman laughed at me and gave me whiskey, even though it was only 7 in the morning. Great times. <laughs> this is Ben Terrace. He writes about national politics for the Post-Style section. And over the years, he's gotten himself into some pretty wild situations. There was a speechwriter for Senator Rob Portman named Brett Talley, who, in addition to being a speechwriter, was also a horror novelist and an amateur ghost hunter. And so I went ghost hunting with him in a cemetery near Georgetown. Ben is known for taking a really unique approach to writing about politics. He has spent years covering the people he calls the sideshow characters, embedding with the Washington insiders who aren't always household names, but are crucial to understanding how politics works. And then a reality TV star became president. One of the things that I found is that if you have a experience covering oddballs, when Donald Trump became president, you kind of were an expert in a way that most people in Washington were not. So when all the weird characters became the most important people in Washington, I actually had a pretty good good read on some of them. Yeah. It's like when the sideshow became the main attraction. Exactly. Yeah. They're, on, they're in the center ring now. When Trump left office, Ben wondered, what happened to all those people? Did Washington go back to the status quo? And how does power work now? So he looked into those questions and wrote a book. I think that it's pretty apparent to people all over the country that politics is broken right now. Not everybody knows why. And I think that this is a book that can help explain that to people. This is sort of like a hitchhiker's guide to current day politics. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, June 5th. Today, I talk with Ben about his new book out this week, The Big Break. Ben tells me about the people who let him into their lives, including the gamblers, the party animals, and the true believers trying to win in Washington. So, Ben, you set out with this book to see and examine this question. If it did Donald Trump break Washington the way because he came in with this promise, right, of drain the swamp and and upending things. Tell me about why this was a question that was important for you to explore. Well, when Biden ran for president and won the presidency, he kind of had this promise that he was going to return things to normal. But just didn't seem like that was possible, right? After the four years of the Donald Trump presidency, the idea of, of normal felt impossible. And so I wanted to kind of see what actually the new normal looked like. And it is not normal at all. There's nothing really normal about Washington these days. And so I, I thought it was important just to see what guardrails remained, what new tactics there were for being successful in Washington, how people could gain influence, how people could protect from democracy crumbling or protect their own fortunes. It just seemed like this kind of new time, this almost like a new frontier in Washington. Mm. And all these people were there trying to make their fortune. And it just felt like a really rich territory to explore. So how did you go about answering this question? Well, because I've, I'm not a, a wonky political person by trade or in my nature, the only way I could really think about doing this was finding interesting people. And so I spent two years looking for people who could both be 
captivating to me as a as a writer, as a reader, as as a reporter, but also tell a bigger story about what's going on. So finding somebody who represents a part of the Democratic Party and the struggle for, you know, what they should be post-Trump or the people who are trying to figure out what the Republican Party should be after Trump or the people who are just figuring out how this city works and and where the levers of power are. Well, first of all, I've I've read your book. It's really entertaining. And I'm not someone who, like, I, I actually don't like the term political junkie, but I can't think of another way of putting it. <laughs> like, I'm not one of those people, I think, but I just found myself so engrossed in all of these people's stories. And what's so fascinating to me is that you essentially wrote a Trump book without Donald Trump in it. Um, and it's about all of these other people who emerged during and after his presidency. So, can you introduce some of them to me? Who do we meet first in this book? The first person that you meet in this book is a guy named Sean McElwee. And he is a Democratic pollster-ish. He runs a polling organization, or he ran a polling organization. Young, Democratic, hotshot. Was in the press a fair amount, but not not a household name. Yeah, like I don't know this guy. Right. Yeah, People in Washington knew him. And the reason that people in Washington knew him is because he he made sure that people knew about him. Welcome back to Washington Journal. I'm joined now by Sean McElwee of Data for Progress. He's the co Joining us now via Skype is the executive director of Data for Progress. Great to have you, Sean. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. All right, Sean. there have been so And so he was getting big jobs. He helped out on the John Fetterman campaign. Mm. His polls about Democratic policies uh, and possible legislation was getting tweeted out by the White House a lot. Uh, what we do is we actually take from the voter file. That means we are have a much better coverage in terms of young voters, much better coverage in terms of Latino voters. Um, those types and of are often missed out. He also hosted these semi-regular poker nights that were always filled with the kind of mid-tier Democratic operatives who are on the rise. Often these people you could look at around at this table and be like, okay, somebody here is going to be working a big job in an administration someday, if not tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Nobody was a really good poker player. They probably bought in for $100. And there'd be a lot of bluffing and, you know, a lot of money changing hands. Sean was always having the wildest swings of, you know, winning a lot or losing a lot. But it was just kind of, the poker was almost beside the point. People would go there as a way to just chit-chat about politics. Sean was very quotable. He would often say kind of the most outlandish thing he could just to see if he could get a rise out of people. At one Christmas party I was at, he was up on the roof bragging to a group of guests about how he had a daily calendar alert on his phone that just said, don't put shit in texts. Meaning if you make a phone call and say something illegal, instead of putting it in a text, then you're not going to get in trouble for it. He was joking, I think, but also it was the kind of thing he said and that people would laugh at until at the end of the year he was getting in sort of legal trouble and people would wonder, did he do illegal things that he didn't put in texts? He, to me, was one of these great Washington figures that if you got to know him, you could really understand a, a good chunk of Washington. He was ideologically malleable. He kind of had his finger in the air for wherever the winds were blowing in democratic politics. He started out as this Bernie Sanders, socialist type, hosting happy hours in Brooklyn. 
he became an Elizabeth Warren type, you know, he moved a little bit that way. Then he became a big Biden supporter, depending on where the power happened to be in democratic politics. He was always kind of at the center of it. And so Sean heads up this firm, Data for Progress, but then he has this fall from grace, right? Because he's really very powerful for for a period of time. He's he's producing these polls for these big Senate races and and people in the White House know who he is and and other movers and shakers. But then he has this this sort of descent that happens, I feel like, pretty quickly. You're right. I mean, he had this really quick rise and this very dramatic fall. So Sean started Data for Progress in around 2018, and it had this really impressive rise, and it became a very central tool in progressive politics and in democratic politics. But by the end of the year, 2022, after the midterms, the staff that had looked up to Sean turned on him. And I got a sense it was possible right from the beginning. The first time I go to play poker with him at his at his poker night, he starts bragging about bets he's made that are not related to poker at all. He's talking to me and the, and the entire table about political bets he's made on a website called Predict It. What he's doing is he's betting on elections. He's betting on political outcomes like whether a bill will pass or not. He has really weird bets with some of his friends, like whether a senator who had a stroke will be back by a certain day or not. And and, and it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to be so open about it. Uh And so I'm watching this happen in real time. And I I barely know Sean at this point. And I'm a journalist. And I'm thinking, like, this could be a scandal. But instead of keeping it quiet, he's openly bragging about this to everybody. I mean, there's something sort of Trumpy about that, right? Right, right. If there's a... If there's a scandal that you announce, it doesn't seem as scandalous. Yeah, Somebody, like I have nothing to be ashamed about. Right, there's no problem here. Right, it can't be a scandal if I'm talking about right. it. Right. But he also had a theory for why he did it. He, he said, look, I'm a pollster. I'm a numbers guy. I'm a data guy. And if I can't put my money where my mouth is, then what good am I? And so he thinks it's making him a better pollster, a better analyst, a better consultant. And he encouraged his staff to bet too. And it's this staff of young people who are all kind of new to Washington and they don't necessarily know any better. Mm-hmm. And so they get wrapped up into this 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 whole thing. Yeah, it's like a culture of this that's emerging. Yeah, it's a culture. And and somebody I talked to kind of said it almost felt like a cult, right? Where oh, he's, wow. <laughs> he's this guy who is is smart and has figured something out. And he's done a lot of good for, for young people in his organization, put them in positions of power that normally take decades to get into, getting him into rooms with people who wouldn't normally take a meeting with a 25-year-old who's only been in Washington for a year. All that betting is fine in a way while he's on the rise. But once people have a different opinion of him, it's more of a liability. And so what happened to Sean and his gambling? Democrats ended up doing better than they expected in the midterms. But that wasn't necessarily a great thing for Sean. He was sort of out there making public bets against Democrats but then when Democrats outperformed, including Fetterman, who ended up winning despite some bad polling right before the election, Sean kind of didn't look as brilliant as he thought he looked. Yeah, like he was wrong. He was wrong. He had, in fact, placed some bets against Fetterman. And he's working for his campaign. Oh, my yeah, gosh. It was not a good look. No. And the Fetterman <laughs> campaign was very unhappy about it. Yeah. You know, one thing that 
was particularly shocking to me when reading your book. And I don't know, am I naive? But I I feel like this was a revelation that there are people who are gambling on politics and on the outcomes of elections. Is this common? Can you explain this to me? It seems pretty wild. And, and, And could it also be considered like insider trading in some ways? So I was completely shocked by it. I didn't I didn't know about it. And I definitely don't think of myself as naive. But I, I was surprised to, to hear about it. I was surprised to hear about how open it was. And I was also surprised that nobody else at the poker table seemed surprised. Hmm. Sean's story is definitely told as a kind of cautionary tale. Data for Progress no longer allows any political betting. Uh, not, not only are they not encouraging it, it is not allowed. So there's one argument here, right, that by betting on politics, you are, you know, uh, putting your money where your mouth is. But on the other hand, I feel like doesn't it sort of trivialize the whole political process? Because, oh, if this person loses this race, I'm going to be out like 100 bucks or whatever. But you could also view it as, oh, if this person loses this race, that means this is what's going to happen with a lot of important policies that impact thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people's lives. Yeah, I mean, who wins elections and what legislation gets passed, we all have skin in that game, right? right? I mean, that's, I think, yes, it does trivialize it. You know, there's a problem in politics, in my opinion, about the way it's covered and the way that people read about it and think about it as sports, as a game. And this is just one more example of that. I don't want to sound like some sort of, you know, school marm, you know, telling people, don't have any fun out there, you know. I mean, you're out here writing about the weirdos. So. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's fine uh, that people have all sorts of ways to think about things. But to me, it's like, I don't know, it's not really a game. And if people think of Washington as only filled with people that think of politics as a game, then, of course, people are going to hate Washington. And then, of course, people are going to run against Washington. And then it makes it a lot harder for things to get done here. After the break, Ben takes us behind the scenes with Republicans in a post-Trump Washington. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So this is all on the Democratic side of things, but you also look at what Donald Trump did to the people in Washington who helped you know, further his agenda when he was in office, the Republican side of things. So tell me about some of the people you spent time with and what kind of big break did they have when it comes to Republicans? So one of the people I spent time with on the Republican side um, was a guy named Matt Schlapp. He, in the Bush years, George W. Bush years, worked in the White House as a political director, kind of one of these real establishment figure types, you know, people who have been around in Washington for long enough, they know how the game is played, they are usually pretty nice to everybody around, and they get lobbying jobs, and they make a good amount of money, and they sit on boards. Yeah, and Matt Schlapp, he is the chairman of this big conservative conference, 
that happens every year called CPAC, which is put on by the American Conservative Union. So maybe people don't know Matt Schlapp as a name, but they might be very familiar with CPAC. Uh, ben, why were you interested in, in Matt Schlapp? What made him interesting to me is how quickly he became a Trump loyalist. He was one of the first people in Washington to continue supporting Donald Trump after the Access Hollywood video broke in 2016. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just, just, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. <laughs> I can do anything. Pull the house. He and his wife, Mercedes, who was also a Bush uh, alum, drove out to their fancy country house in Virginia and split a bottle of wine and tried to figure out whether they wanted to continue supporting Donald Trump despite that really nasty video of his where he said that it was okay to grope women. And they decided ultimately, yeah, they would double down on their support. It was better for the country they believed for him to be president than for Hillary Clinton. And they also believed it would be better for them. And and they were right. They became this kind of it couple, this Donald Trump it couple that could make a killing. They ended up making so much money, they moved into the largest house on a street called Mansion Drive. <laughs> and they got a crane at one point and they hung a giant Trump flag from it, right? They, as they just, one does. As one does. They just leaned very much into it. This is sort of the story of Republicans in Washington, right? They're, at first, they might not be total Donald Trump supporters, but then they all came around. And I was interested in how that happens and why that happens and how sturdy that is. Are, are, is this loyalty to Trump forever or is it only as long as Trump is powerful? And so I spent time with him. But what's, what makes his story most interesting to me is actually another kind of break that happened. And that's between him and one of his longtime employees, a right-hand man type named Ian Walters, he was the spokesman for, for Matt Schlapp for years. My role in his life, you know, as you know, is to say, okay, what's real here and what do we need to say? And I understand the politics of it as well. So let's say something smart and strong right. and provocative, but that we'll hold up the screen. Okay? That's why they keep me around. Ian was so close to the Schlapps that when he and his wife had their, I think, third child, they were debating whether or not to have the Schlapps be the godparents. But by the time I start reporting this book out, he and Matt are not speaking at all. And I spent time with Ian Walters and his wife, Karen, and Matt Schlapp separately, kind of getting their stories, figuring out where they fit into the Washington landscape, the Republican landscape, the political landscape, but also where they fit into each other's lives. It was a very healthy relationship for a long time, I feel like. Maybe, maybe it wasn't, but, you know, Well, the, it there worked. also was, I mean, you always had a different sort of experience with Matt than I did. Uh-huh. Um, you interacted much more frequently than I did. And by the end of it, I mean, they just didn't fit into each other's lives at all. And the things that he's decided are important to him. Um, I am increasingly convinced they're frivolous. Like what? Clicks, tweets, likes. 
followers. <laughs> it's having grown up around it. I, I don't, don't. I've never been particularly hungry for it. And that story really did tell me a lot about how Republican politics are working today. Ian was born into the Washington establishment in a way. He, he grew up in the area. His father was the chief political correspondent for the Washington Times. So he was around politics for his whole life. And when he went to work for CPAC, he loved it at first. It's this huge event, and Republicans flock to it every year. If you're a Republican running for president, you pretty much have to go to CPAC. In recent years, it's become almost like a rally for Donald Trump. And Ian was always a little bit skeptical about it, but he, you know, he supported Donald Trump. He voted for him. He put on the show and would spin on behalf of it. And, you know, it's not like he was completely naive to what he was doing. He knew that there was some dark stuff happening in American politics, and he was he was part of it. But especially after January 6th, he, he really starts to realize that he doesn't want to be associated with this. And it's just like, my God, what are we going to have to deal with? This makes all of us look like such. Mm -hmm. You know, here, these, you know, here are, whether you like it or not, your ambassadors. Yeah. Who are speaking on your behalf. And that sure as hell in the message that, 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 that we've been a part of. Plenty of people in Republican politics don't want to be associated if they had their druthers with Donald Trump or January 6th. But a lot of people do it anyway. They, it's how they make a living or they decide, well, they need, there needs to be some adults in the room. So if I leave, then who am I leaving this to? Right. This idea of like, oh, I'm the adult in the room. I'm the guardrail. And this is sort of what Ian was telling himself, right? Yep. Ian was telling himself that and telling me that. But at a certain point, it becomes untenable. My stock answer has been... Um... Because, as look, my new job is, you know, auditioning for Dad of the Year. And it's like, you know, like I, I quit smoking. I remember somebody told me once, it's like, that must be tough for you, Ian, because it's sort of part of your identity. And this is the same thing. This is part of my identity. It's something that I've given, you know, a good chunk of my life to. Right. And, they, and, and because of that, like, I sort of need it to succeed. I need it to do well mm-hmm. because I'm CPAC Ian. Right? That's why you're in my phone house. Yeah, right. It, for for, for like, so many people. For like 15 years or whatever, however long it's been. Um, so there, there's this pre-leaving exercise that's walking up the mountain to say, I am done. The whys are not so clear. All right, so what... So how, do, how do you arrive at that point? It's, it's gut. It's emotional. It's instinctive. There's no, well, because this happened on this day. And what was interesting to me is it's not just a story of a guy whose politics make him decide, okay, I can't be a part of this anymore. A lot of this is personal drama and pettiness and what it's like to work with somebody that you're so close with and then have a falling out with them. I thought we were brothers and we could hem and haw and talk smack to one another uh, affectionately in a useful, productive kind of way. And it's just, it sort of began to deteriorate and it it was sad and I didn't know the reason why. Uh, so, But that can affect your, shall we say, well-being in, a, in, a, in an office uh, environment a great deal. And sometimes these big breaks that you go through, 
you know, ideological shifts or deciding to leave your party or leave your job. Sometimes those big breaks only happen because a lot of little breaks happen first. So after all of your time talking to people who are behind the scenes, behind the curtains, not the big names that most people know, how did your sense of Washington after Trump change? Do you have a clear sense? And and what is your sense of how Washington after Trump is? There's a lot of people who have had this long-time view of Washington as a place where there's these secret rooms where things happen, right? Smoke-filled rooms where masters of the universe are pulling strings and doing nefarious things. What I've sort of found is that most of these rooms anyway are filled with people not like that at all. Like often it's like pretty idiotic what's happening in these rooms. (laughs) And I think that one of the things that Trump did is he sort of made it okay to be be more of a showman than a brilliant mind, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in Washington who decided to, like, imitate parts of Trump, and they can get away with it because people, it turns out, love showmen in Washington. And do you feel like things are actually different than the pre-Trump days? And and will they always be this way? Yeah, Donald Trump, once he left town, I mean, his fingerprints remained all over Washington, right? And so I think that that there are parts of, of Washington that that he revealed that we're always always there, right? People acting like they know things when they don't really know things or people who are willing to change their ideology depending on where the power and the money is at any given moment. But Donald Trump, I mean, it, it basically put wa- all that stuff in Washington into superdrive. And so the things that, that were there are now much bigger, much Trumpier than, than they were, even though he's not here anymore. So I guess one of the things that people talk about, especially on Twitter when they're talking about Washington, is that how it's become a place where people say the quiet part loud, where it used Hmm. to be that you had to at least, for the sake of shame and for the sake of decorum and for the sake of not offending people out in the world, uh, kind of tone down what you really mean, right? And now people are saying the things that they're supposed to keep quiet loudly because Trump has sort of made that okay. Once you say the scandalous thing out loud and people are okay with it, I do think people can get away with more scandalous things. And this is what, you know, the whole Sean and Benning thing was about, right? He was saying the quiet part out loud. Sure, there are people who are cynical that treat politics like a game, but they don't go out and say, I'm treating politics like a game and I'm going to make money off of it because people would not like that. But now this place sort of operates with the volume turned up louder than it ever was before. So looking ahead after spending all of this time evaluating how Trump transformed Washington, what are your thoughts going into 2024? Like Trump is running again, and if he wins, and I know there's a lot to talk about within that, on this question— how Washington has changed. Will it transform once again? Like, what, what, are, what are you sitting and thinking about when, when you look ahead to 2024? Yeah, there was a lot of talk when Trump left town that people were going to start putting up all these guardrails to keep what happened in 2016 and, and beyond from happening again. And really, I don't think any of those guardrails really fully got put up. And so 
the same way this was a place that he could move into in 2016, it feels very possible that it could happen again. I would not make any predictions because part of the point of this book is it's filled with people who make predictions and end up being wrong. Yeah. And there's no consequences for them. And I try to make fun of them a little bit for it. And so I don't want to be somebody that I would make fun of. So I don't know what's going to happen. That's a good role in all. life yeah. and in general. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what all what's going to happen, but certainly it has not changed enough as a place that will obviously reject someone like Donald Trump. There are still a lot of the same forces here that brought him here last time. Well, Ben, thanks so much for not just writing the book, but joining us and to talk about it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Ben Terrace covers national politics for the style section. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Rena Flores. If you love the show, help other people discover Post Reports by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.